All right, welcome back, folks, to another edition of the Bibliotheques podcast. Today, Cody and myself are continuing Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. We are starting part two today. Cody, how are you, sir? Back from the holidays, full of holiday spirit and ready to talk about our favorite 19th century Massachusetts family. The break that we took for Thanksgiving felt great. I feel rejuvenated. I feel ready to get back at it. But part of me was like, you know, just itching to get on with this story just because we kind of left with the end of part one last week. We left with like a little bit of a cliffhanger, not like a crazy one, but just kind of like, all right, what's happening with, you know, Meg and John and all all of that stuff. So I'm psyched to get back into this story today. Uh, I hope you all are as well. Today, as I said last time, we're covering chapters 24 through 31, or the first eight chapters in part two of Little Women. Just as a quick review from last time, part one ended in our recap with dad getting real sick, Marmy and John Brooke, or Mr. Broke, as we're calling him, uh, going down to Washington, D.C. to tend to him. Uh, Beth, meanwhile, is very sick herself after taking care of the poor Hummel family all by her lonesome. At this point, Amy is sent away to stay with Aunt March. Aunt March takes a liking to Amy. Amy writes her will at this point. Very morbid. Marmy ends up coming home to take care of Beth when her fever worsens. And we get news that Marmy's a big fan of this John Brooke guy. And Joe is not happy about this news. Lori, at this point, is playing this prank, trying to get the deets on Meg's feelings for John. Dad shows back up on, as a surprise on Christmas. And finally, our section ended last week with Mr. Broke trying to get Meg to tell him how she feels about him. He's disappointed, to say the least, when she says that she isn't really into him that much. But then Aunt March comes in and kind of settles the question as the chapter is aptly titled, where Meg kind of like flips her tune and says, you know what, Aunt March, I'm going to marry whoever I want. This John Broke guy is a real good... He's a a real catch. And I'm going to marry him if I want to. And so she ends up accepting Broke's proposal. And that leaves us at the end of part one and where we start today with chapter 24 titled Gossip. Cody, if you could take us away, sir. All righty. Three years have passed since the last chapter. A quick aside before we even dive in, I was interested to see how I would read this section, knowing that it is the beginning of a part two and not just like the continuation of a full novel. So just maybe trying to figure out what may have been, what was influenced perhaps by reception and criticism of the first part of the book, knowing that, you know, it must have been glowing enough to receive a part two. So three years have passed. The Civil War is now over. Huge shouts to the Union. (laughs) Those are the guys. That's great. Mr. March is at home permanently, and he spends his time uh, doing 19th century estate guy things, aka reading and just kind of taking guests. We know all about that life. And uh, Mrs. March is a little bit older, as everyone is, and most of her time is uh, helping Meg get ready for her wedding to Mr. John Brooke. Yay. Very excited. We do not (laughs) see any of the proposal, but um, they're getting married and that's great. Uh, Not great. 
John Brooks served in the army, got wounded, now is more or less an invalid. That's not good. But he got a job when he came home as a bookkeeper for Mr. Lawrence and uh, is just kind of working on building that nest egg to support Meg. Meg has uh, basically been going to Housewife Academy with Marmy and Hannah. Um, and she's a little bit jealous of Sally Gardner and Ned Moffat, who got married and are basically just like rich and chilling. They don't do anything. And she's like, God, I want to do that. And by that, we mean <laughs> nothing. Uh, but she's also very excited to move into a little cottage with John. Uh, Amy has replaced Joe as Aunt March's companion. And Joe's like, this is sweet. Now I can focus on writing for newspapers and taking care of Beth who unfortunately is still very sick all this time. Uh, this was crazy to me that her illness is just like running for three years straight. She's just got scarlet fever. Well, I, for three I don't years, think or what do we think is going think on with has, I don't think that she has scarlet fever for three years. The impression that I got is like Beth got just absolutely rocked by scarlet fever when she got it. And has never been able to like fully recover. And and I don't I don't think okay. that means that she hasn't beat Scarlet Fever, but she just isn't at like full strength ever since being absolutely right. just destroyed by this. Yeah, it it really hit her with the full strength of the of of a nineteenth century disease. Um, <laughs> Lori is in college got a lot of uh, cool friends and he's basically doing that freshman in college life where he's like, I'm here to rage and I'm <laughs> not here to do school as my grandpa wants. Uh, but the March family keeps him honest. Lori does also bring his friends by. He's got cool college friends and Amy and Joe like them a lot. Amy because uh, she gets to feel pretty and get attention and Joe because it's just more dude pals for Joe to hang out with. <laughs> John Brooke is, meanwhile, just slaving away on their cottage, getting it ready for Meg. The family calls it, and Paul, I don't know what you thought the pronunciation was, is the Devacote? Just Dovecote, maybe? I don't know. Uh, so the so the, so the D-spot. Yeah. As, I, as, <laughs> as I'll call it. All right. John and Meg's place, the D-spot. Uh, it's, it's a little house with a yard. Uh, and John and, March, and the March girls do a lot of the interior decorating and getting it ready. Lori tries to like help them buy a bunch of like household contraptions <laughs> and everyone's like, dude, it's so clear that you have like never once had to do like an ounce of work in your life. Cause you're like, why would anyone need this? Right. <laughs> like on your wedding reception, when you're like, you're like, we, we would like a new set of silverware. And this guy comes in, he's like, I got you like this extremely fucking insane blender that you'll never use. And they're like, Thanks, Lori. <laughs> so Amy wishes that Meg could have a servant since most, you know, middle class, upper middle class people around their time do. Uh, but Meg is pretty much in on the idea that she wants to be as homely as possible and take care of the work herself so she doesn't stay idle. There's a little thing about how Marmy was like, it's good that I learned how to get household stuff done because when your husband or because when my husband lost all his money trying to be a good guy, it was nice to then be able to just hit the ground running and take care of the house. They uh, go through and see all the stuff that she's kind of collected on the way to her wedding day. She's gotten a big gift of like linens from Aunt March. Lori comes to the cottage and basically uh, says that John has stopped to go get the marriage license. 
Uh, but he also comes with a present and it's a large watchman's rattle. <laughs> so like when an actual shepherd would like get like jumped by wolves or something, he could like ring this loud ass noisemaker and like summon people to help him. And everyone's like, yeah, that's super annoying, dude. Don't do that again. <laughs> so Joe and Lori start talking and Lo- and Joe's like, hey, Lori, um, all that fun contraption stuff for the house is great. But could you like not be a dick at the wedding or like pull any practical jokes? And Lori's like, don't worry. I'm just doing this because like I'm around you guys and I'm, I'll be on my best behavior. And Lori's like, I, there's something been bothering me. I've kind of been living that party life a little too hard at the old college and I'm straight up broke now. And I got to go ask my grandpa for more, for more change. And that's going to be a super not chill conversation. And Joe's like, well, you're too generous with your money. You gave a bunch of money to a poor friend who is struggling in college. And Joe's also like, well, you also spend the money on fancy clothes. And then Lori's like, haha, yeah, that's enough. Enough of that conversation. Like, I'll, like, yeah, it's bad that I spend money poorly, but also, I know, I know. He's doing like the hand wave. Like, I know, I know, I know. Lori also tells Joe that all his friends are in love with Amy. And Joe's like, hey, dude, like, don't you know anything about how I feel about like dudes taking away my sisters? Like, I can't have any more of this wedding bullshit. And, Lori's kind of like, well, I don't know, Joe. Like, I bet you could be next. Like, and she's like, no, I'm going to be an old maid forever. And he's like, well, it's just because you don't give anyone the chance to love you. And she's like, I'm too busy, like, being an author and not wanting to get married to get married. And Lori's like, I think you'll be the next to get married. And that's kind of how the chapter ends, like a little ominous about that, where you're like, huh. All right. Right. Quote, mark my words, Joe. You'll go next. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wonder what that okay. means. What I really liked about that chapter is that it felt like a very seamless way of like reintroducing us to this story while also fast forwarding in time. And what I mean by that is like it did all of the exposition stuff at the front of the chapter and then very just like seamlessly all of a sudden we're talking about, you know, present time which is three years ahead of where we left off. And it just felt like a very easy kind of glide down. And now we're just back in the story. Yeah, I totally agree. I um, also really appreciated um, just the kind of little things that make uh, you notice that three years have gone by. One of which being like, now Amy is appreciative of the attention of boys because she's 16 now. Right. And just that'll probably have an effect on things going forward because at one point in the beginning of our story, we know that they're all children and that is a very heavy focus from especially the adults that like there shouldn't be any romantic interest except for maybe Meg because the rest of them are so much younger. But now I wouldn't be surprised if that changes. Totally. Totally agree. And the one weird thing is that, you know, before... Lori and Joe are having these conversations back and forth where Lori is like heavily hinting at the fact that he's into Joe, or at least he is to us, the reader, and nothing seems to have changed there. (laughs) And it's just, to me, it's just weird because it seems like, okay, so three years in the future and literally everything's the same with these two characters. 
yeah two things one probably because of that age thing where there's they are considered too young to maybe start having those conversations and then also you know it's taken a while for um mr broke to uh get his stuff together and actually like propose and have them get married okay in fairness he did you know get wounded serving Mm -hmm. that 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 did take a year off the timeline but i wouldn't be surprised if any big kind of gestures of love by uh lori have been delayed by him waiting for meg to then get proposed so then he can then who's next in line it's joe and he's like you'll be fucking next totally totally all right, so lots of lot more to get into today. So let's get into chapter 25 titled The First Wedding. So very sweet. I just like to take note of this from time to time. The chapter, this chapter itself um starts with this description of June roses and comparing them to Meg. And in this book so much of it is like heavy on plot that I, we don't really talk about how great Alcott is with just like her straight up writing. But it it was just a it's a lovely a lovely um, section and a, a lovely way to start a chapter about a wedding. Meg is going into like hippie bride mode where she's like, I don't want to be wearing all of like the nicest things. I don't want to be ha- like I don't want to have in her words a fashionable wedding. She just cares that the people that she loves is there and around her. And so at this point, we get an update on the appearances of all of the girls. So Joe and Amy have both had kind of a glow up. Joe's hair is back in full force, which was her one beauty previously. LOL. Um, Yeah. Her features are described as being a little less sharp. Um, She looks a little softer and moves a lot more gracefully now. Amy's described as being the jewel of the family. She's got some quirks with she's got this nose that she doesn't really like and and some other things about her face that she considers unattractive but it's the type of thing where it's like everybody else that's what they find attractive about you and this is true of people today too where like you know somebody has some different thing about their face that they might not like and it's like no 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 that's like why you're attractive so that's what Amy's got going on. Meanwhile, Beth is very thin, as Cody was saying, never fully recovered after her illness. So she's very thin. She's got these big eyes, though, and they're described as making you sad, even though they aren't sad themselves necessarily. So we get from here into just a description of the actual wedding day. So my understanding, Cody, of this is that it's being held at the March house, not the D spot. And Aunt March shows up and is totally scandalized by how unceremonious the whole occasion is. Like, Broke is in there setting up streamers and shit and trying to like help his bride-to-be. Aunt March is like, dude, you're not supposed to look at your bride until you guys get married. Like, that's a kind of a thing. And everybody's like, ah, oh, March, shut the fuck up. We're just here to have a good time. Like, settle down, have a seat. So then Lori shows up bringing the fucking party with him. Lori's like hyped because it's essentially like his sister getting married and he's just ready to get down. From here, we have a simple ceremony, very <clears throat> just kind of cute garden type wedding. John during the ceremony is like clearly very nervous. He's not saying his vows particularly loud, 
which Cody, I'm, I'm used to that. Like I've been to plenty of weddings where whatever, like the priest is like, do you accept blah, blah, blah to be your lawfully wedded husband or wife? And then both of the people are like, yeah, I, I do. <laughs> Shit's scary, man. <laughs> I, I get it. It's just like, dude, would you, what, what's more normal? People being a little bit bashful at their wedding when like every important person in both their lives is staring at them, making like <laughs> the most important commitment they'll make. And then if they were like, I do, or would it be like, I do, <laughs> which would be like more like, wait a minute, <laughs> what's going on? He's got something up his sleeve. Well, Meg makes up for his kind of bashfulness in the ceremony because she does give a little bit more of a confident, I do. Anyway, after the ceremony, there's this, you know, kind of nice lunch reception served. Mr. Lawrence and Aunt March. Uh, both shrug and smile at one another when they see that the only refreshment served in terms of like beverages are water, lemonade, and coffee. Lori, however, is confused and he goes straight to the bride and is like, yo, Meg, what's, what gives? Where's the fucking libations? And what? It turns out that Mr. Lawrence, Grandpa Lawrence himself, offered some sick bottles of wine, and Aunt Marge actually ended up sending some over. But Mr. March only kept those bottles of wine to treat Beth's illness and sent the rest of the bottles of wine for soldiers who were in the hospital. So in Mr. March's mind, wine should only be used, and liquor, I would assume in general, should only be used to tend to sick people. I'm just like, okay, fucking lame. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Rare Mr. March L. (laughs) Where this, this, this is what happens when you've been treated by bad doctors for so long. You also like, okay, here's the thing. There's two things going on here because like I assume you're going to talk about in a little bit that a lot of the girls in the March family are like liquor is bad because it makes you out of control of your actions and mm. that's not good. So it's more of like a moral thing. And, but the, yes, they're also like, so there's a little bit of like the, okay, if you don't like alcohol because of the way it kind of, it can like has the potential to hurt people, I get it, but don't then follow it up with this, but it's good for our sick daughter, Beth. <laughs> you know yeah. Well, it, yeah what what are we doing here is it <laughs> is it like a morally corrupt like way that men become scoundrels or is it also a healthy libation for the sick child <laughs> Lori, don't drink that beth <laughs> chug this down <laughs> exactly Lori's like but Lori, okay but Lori is also being a little bit like guy after his first semester of college oh and like like, i've been there yeah okay so (laughs) the thing that you're alluding to cody with like the march girls talking to Lori. so meg herself is makes Lori promise not to drink on her wedding day slash like ever i don't really know it was a little open-ended right but and it was for the reasons that Cody was talking about, and the first semester of college thing is so true because Lori's like, "Hey, man, there's lots of just lovely gals that have been like, "Hey, Lori, come drink with me," and like I haven't said no, but I haven't been the guy like offering. Is is that cool? And Meg's like, "You know what? 
Not really. <laughs> That's probably not great either. So wine off the table, quite literally. The rest of the day of this wedding day is spent just dancing. Lori leads the, you know, the whole party in what sounds like a great, great time on the dance floor. He's the DJ, apparently. Uh, and there's just a really awkward exchange between Grandpa Lawrence and Aunt March where he's like, hey, Aunt March, do you want to dance with me? And she's like, fuck off. And he's like, hey, it's a wedding. You know, like, I can't drink. Just, you know, don't have to be mean about it. You throw me a bone here. <laughs> right. Okay. So after the wedding is over, everyone leaves and everybody had a total blast. Mr. Lawrence, uh, Grandpa Lawrence looks at Lori and he's like, hey, if you ever wanted to have a wedding with uh and get one of those March girls to help you put it on, be my guest. That was a great time. And Lori's like, bet. Yeah, bet. I'm <laughs> I am planning on doing so, sir. And he's like holding this flower that Joe gave him at the same time. Meanwhile, the Moffats are leaving and they're like, wait, why the fuck was that fun? They're poor. That's not supposed to happen. Yeah, <laughs> no, what the fuck? Like, that was that sick. Was, that, was, that was fucking weird. Yeah. And lastly, Mrs. March sends Meg and John off to their house, the D-spot, to uh, start their married life together. And that's where we get to the end of that chapter. Pretty lovely, honestly. It was a great chapter. Not, not a whole lot of notes. No, not a whole lot of notes. Not a whole lot of notes. Not, not too worried. Fun wedding. Sounds more, great. More Lori telegraphing stuff, you know? Yeah, exactly. Also, you know, throw Lori a bone. Let him have a glass of wine. It's a wedding. Right. Jesus did it. What are we doing? <laughs> yeah. Can't be that bad. Chapter 26, Artistic Attempts. Uh, one thing leading into this chapter, this is actually going to be a very heavy Amy segment of the book um, going forward. Amy in kind of her description of how she's aged in these three years. Um, Alcott also mentions that she's one thing that she's having trouble with is conflating wealth and status with like moral superiority. And that kind of comes through in this chapter. So Amy has been like a big artist recently. You know, she was always the most talented drawer of the four sisters, but her artistic boundaries have kind of not really known any limits. She's been painting. She's been wood burning. She's been doing charcoal portraits and sketching and she's just been doing all of it but each like time she just tries to commit herself to becoming like a savant in one of these artistic entries it like always just blows up in her face but she's just like no I'm going to be a fucking famous artist and you're all wrong everyone's going to like my shit it's going to be amazing she's like really really trying to like use art as her elevation to another social status. So one day Amy comes home and she's like, there are a lot of girls in my drawing class and I want to have them over to have like a sketch party. And Mrs. March is like, great. We'll just put together like a little bit of lunch for you girls. It'll be great. And Amy's like, no, these girls are rich and we got to like not be poor. <laughs> and Marmy's like, Marmy's like, okay, hold on. <laughs> like, like how many how many people do we have coming to this rich ass lunch you want to throw? And she's like, you know, like twelve, but also like it's only gonna like be like four or six. It's not gonna be that big, which is like oh okay. <laughs> so like she presents her like alternative lunch to Marmy, and Marmy's like, that sounds really expensive, but 
Amy's like, I've been saving my own money. It'll be great. I'll help with everything. And she, Marmy's like, this is definitely a mistake, but I'm, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to prove a point. So I'm going to let Amy try and put on this absolute train wreck of a party. And I know it's going to suck, but I'm just going to try and like beat some sense into this girl by letting her fail. Meg agrees to help Amy. Joe's like, I don't really want to like hang out with your like pretentious drawing rich friends. And, but Amy's basically like, you're just being contrarian and help me do this thing. And she's like, fine, I'll do it. So they send out the invitations and whoops, all the girls accept. And so, <laughs> so now we got a dozen girls come over for rich lunch and Hannah's like, God damn it. <laughs> <Amy>. <laughs> I got to fucking cook lunch for like 13 girls is going to blow. And you know, everything's going wrong. Hannah's cooking some, for some reason, Hannah just like botched the lunch. Things are more expensive than Amy had thought. Beth is sick. Poor girl. Meg's like, actually, psych. I'm busy taking care of my house. The D spot's a disaster. And Joe's like, I keep breaking things. And Amy's like, also, I never accepted this. Also, this is a bad idea. Also, I'm hating it actively. So Amy has told the girls to come on Monday. But if the weather sucks on Monday, come on Tuesday. Monday happens. Weather sucks. Nobody shows up. Tuesday, the food is like, getting stale they just one thing is weird is like yeah there's no refrigerators right it's <laughs> cooked a meal and just left it out okay right tuesday it's morning so, lobster just out of the open yeah it's lobster just aired out lobster someone's gonna get food poisoning and if we know anything <laughs> about disease in the 19th century like you know when you're like you get food poisoning might happen like once or twice in your life but you get so sick that you're actively googling like am i going to die <laughs> like, am I gonna die? That's how bad it, I cannot imagine. Like, 19th century, like room temperature lobster. Oh just my god, begging to get someone sick. Okay, yeah. So when Mrs. March is like, "Hey, I wasn't able to get a lobster, so I'll have to go without it for the salad," and Amy's like, "I'll go myself. Fuck it. I'm got to put the team on my back for this sick lunch." But apparently buying lobster, like getting groceries, is like a low class errand, and Amy's trying to like be hidden while she does it. So like it's a big basket and like wears a veil <laughs> to like hide her shame having to go grocery shopping. Yeah. So she gets a lobster and like takes like takes the ride home. And there's only one other passenger. It's an old lady. So Amy takes off her veil. The next stop, one of Lori's college friends named Tudor gets on the bus. Just an all time rich dude name here. Tudor, are you kidding me? <laughs> dude, Tudor absolutely sick. Played attack. On his lack team in high school, no to say, dude plays lacrosse, no doubt. I would in Massachusetts, I would bet my life that this dude plays lacrosse. <laughs> anyway, so he, he like, goes to Cornell on a lack scholarship. Oh, dude, yeah, dude. He's like, he's like, yeah, I turned down John Hopkins because Baltimore is sus. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Tudor sits down to chat. And Amy's kind of ignoring the basket that she has. But when the old lady gets off the bus, she knocks over the basket and this lobster just falls out. And Tudor's like, oh, that must have been that old lady getting the lobster and tries to get it back to her. And Amy's like, oh, no, that's actually my lobster. And it's expensive. Please don't give it to the lady. Mm -hmm. And Tudor's like, oh, yeah, that looks pretty cool. And so Amy like saves the day by joking that Tudor like probably wants to see the girl that's eating it. And he's like, okay. <laughs> and Amy gets home and like you know she's like alright my dress is fucked because this lobster like got spilled on it 
but we have to get everything ready. So finally, Amy like gets Mr. Lawrence's carriage to like go get the girls. But as they come into the window, we realize that only one girl has actually like followed up on the RSVP. So now like Joe and Beth have to like clamor with Hannah to like remove like 11 place settings. <laughs> and so Amy entertains a guest, Miss Elliot, and it's like fine. Everything's fine. And finally the party's over. And Amy like comes home. They're all like, hey, how was it knowing that it just sucked? But Amy's like big time depressed. The marches like sit down to eat and it's like all the leftovers because they made it for like 12 people. And like eventually like Amy is like so embarrassed that she like decides like we're just gonna give all this away to the Hummels. Amy's very, very sad. And you know, everyone's trying to be comforting except for Joe, who's like, it is pretty funny though, right? <laughs> I think it's a little funny. But basically, Amy's like, please don't mention this anymore. Like I, this is like very embarrassing for me. And no one brings it up at all except for Lori, who gives Amy a coral lobster charm for her bracelet on her birthday. Mm-hmm. Which is just, you know, Laura, you know, he just couldn't resist. Oh my God, dude. <laughs> I just would love to get a, you know, we get like semi perspective from everybody in this book. I mean, it's all, you know, it's all third person, but like, I would love to get a first person account of just Lori through all of these chapters. <laughs> Just to hear him shopping for the perfect lobster themed prank gift for Amy. Yeah, going to like the silversmith. Yeah. And just being like, do you have any lobsters? And the guy's like, why? And I'm like, I'm trying to prank my friend. Right. And this is at a time where lobster is still literally just like a bug that lives on the bottom of the ocean. It's not not lobster like we have lobster today. Like lobsters were literally just like bugs that people ate. (laughs) They they were fed to prisoners. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great chapter. I, Amy's downfall, it's, it's tough because she tries so hard and you don't like, I lose sight of that pretty easily because I don't always agree with why she's doing things, but she does give a shit, you know? Oh yeah. And it, it, you really feel for her at the end of this chapter when she's just so defeated, but it's good in the, you know, the Alcott way where it just feels like nothing can stay kind of dreary for so long. Like even this chapter ends with a laugh. Yeah. And one thing that's funny to me is that of all, all the daughters are like so conscious of trying to like learn lessons and most chapters end with a lesson to be learned or attributed. Amy just doesn't learn her lesson. She's yeah. Just, she's just stridently just like, cause like, her, cause like the previous very Amy centric chapter was her like, like literally it was titled like Amy's downfall or some shit. And it was like, it was oh. about the lime debt, like the pickled limes. And that lesson was like, hey, you don't like you're in Lyme debt and this went bad. And because you were like trying to prove a point that you were fitting in with this, what you perceived as the important part of society. And in doing so, you were cruel to someone and they snitched on you and you got fucking like corporal punished in front of the class. Like you realize like you wouldn't be in this situation if you never gotten the Lyme debt. And she's like, yeah, kind of. And now she's like, all my drawing friends are rich. And like, instead of just like inviting them over to her place to sketch the countryside, which sounds like a very normal thing to do, she has to dress it up with this like 
and also they're rich and I can't not be like that because mm-hmm. like because like again like she conflates like how she how she conflates wealth and status with like with like actually goodness and that's and like the whole right and and like right. everyone's like no that's not the case I really want you to see that and she's like all right I hear you um <laughs> but no I hear you it's gonna take another few chapters yeah it's gonna <laughs> okay so or or maybe never we'll find out um chapter 27 is titled literary lessons so we're switching focus to joe where previously like amy was very obsessive over trying all these different types of art joe on the other hand obsesses over this novel that she's working on and it's described as her like falling into these manic writing sprees that last like a week or two where she just basically like shuts herself away in the attic and just doesn't want to do anything else other than just work on her novel. Everyone can tell because she's just like, she's got this outfit on that she's rubbing like pen ink all over, just kind of a mess during these, during these sprees. So after one of these is going on, um, Joe escorts um, a Miss Crocker to this lecture on ancient Egypt where she's seated next to a boy who's reading some just Garbo story in the newspaper. But Joe's intrigued by this, and the boy sees her like reading the story over his shoulder. So he lets her read it, and Joe finish it, finishes it, and it's just like, wow, that's absolute shit. <laughs> and the boy is like, you know, this is written by Mrs. Slang Northbury, and uh, she makes bank writing this this kind of story and he follows this up by saying that she knows what people like so we're immediately given this type of situation where joe is introduced to the idea of writing for an audience other than yourself and potentially at the sacrifice of what you deem to be quality and getting paid for it. So in hearing this, Joe doesn't pay attention to the lecture that goes on, but is busy planning to write this story and win this prize that's advertised in the paper worth $100 of writing the best story uh, and getting it printed in the paper. So Joe starts writing this story later and submits a manuscript. And she waits six weeks without telling anyone about the story but she receives a letter in the mail with $100. Absolute elation from Joe because all of a sudden she's like, holy shit, I can do this. Like I can provide for myself by writing these stories, using this thing that I know I'm good at. I can do this. But there's the kind of caveat that this is what's described as a sensation story where it's not like high literature. Think like Twilight of its time I'm kind of thinking of in like short story form where it's like Air, airport books thank you that's a better description airport books yes uh, there's just some like dude on the cover it's like <laughs> a, a, a lot of that now is like like the extreme like a bunch of like different like fantasy novels that come out and you know we're big fantasy folks here but like there's a whole like genre now of like fast read fantasy books that are coming out and they got action and they got romance and they got like 
graphic romance. Now, obviously, there's not that going on here, but she describes this as like a sensationalist, like you said, like story of love, intrigue, and a murder. So, you know, playing the hits. People have liked this shit forever. Yeah. So the family reaction to her winning this prize is, of course, amazing. When they read the story, everyone loves it. But Joe's dad in particular is like, you know what? Great story. But I know you can do better than this. And his lesson here is like, don't worry about the money. Focus on getting really good at writing and the money will follow. Amy, on the other hand, thinks the money is the best part of it <laughs> and asks how Joe's going to spend her, her cash. And Joe's plan is to send Marmy and Beth to the beach for a little getaway with the hopes that Beth will recover some of the strength that she lost uh, and never regained. From here, Joe continues to submit more of these stories and she starts getting more checks and she just starts throwing down the bag for the family. So Joe's providing new carpet for the house. She's paying their butcher bill, buying groceries for them. And with this new success, Joe starts thinking like, all right, this novel that I have just sitting as a manuscript has been bugging me for years. I need to know if this is worth anything. So she sends three copies to three different publishers to get their take on it. And the feedback she gets back is that she needs to cut the book down by one third if she wants to <clears throat> if she wants to sell it. It's just a little too lengthy in the minds of the publishers. So Joe's like, all right, well, I've got a few few options here and starts getting some input from from her parents. So her dad says, you don't need to be a rush to print this book and try and sell it. Like keep it the way it is, keep working on it, and then do do whatever you want with it. But like, don't be in a rush to, rush to get this on shelves right away. Marmy thinks the outside critics could be right and it might be better to get the books on the shelves now. And Beth is like, I don't really care what you do as long as you get the product out here soon. And this is emphasized and it's a really eerie section because Joe's like, holy shit, like, Beth is kind of in a hurry to be able to read my book. Like, what does that mean? You know, her health isn't super good. So we've got some of that going on. But it's really the deciding factor for Joe to decide, all right, I'm cutting down the book, cutting out some of the you know extra fat, as it were, and send it to be printed. Joe gets $300 for this book and a bunch of mixed reviews. And Joe was not really prepared for either the criticism or the praise that she gets for the book. And she's kind of left wishing that she printed the whole thing because a lot of what the criticism is, I feel like Joe has a hard time stomaching it because she knows that this version of her novel is not her entire work. So all of the criticism on this book is like, she's like, well, I didn't pu publish everything that I wanted to. So why are you talking to me about how bad my writing is when I had to cut a third of it out? Yeah, it's it's both ways too. And like the people right. that are telling her that the book's good, she's like, Well, you like something that I think could be better. Or like, you don't incomplete. even like what I tried yeah. to do. Yeah. Yeah. So the chapter ends with Joe trying to like come to grips with all of this feedback, but pretty ready at the time to get back on the horse and, you know, keep writing more books by the end of the chapter. Yeah. Great chapter. I really enjoyed kind of diving deep into Joe's 
obsession with the writing. It's not, especially her like writing now that she's getting older with like the outside world. It's far less a hobby now and far more like, as she even says, like a way to support the family. She's like, this is great. Everything I like, I'm doing the writing. The family's doing great. It's awesome. Yeah. It also felt very meta too, where like we have this female author who's writing this book and Joe is her closest comp in terms of this like semi autobiographical retelling of her youth. Right. And so getting the kind of like seeing a little bit about how the sausage is made, where all of the, we know that Alcott wrote those sensation stories. We know that obviously she wrote Little Women. And so getting to hear directly from Alcott through the voice of Joe in terms of like disappointment and having to cut down stories and how obsessive she is over it felt really, really cool. Mm-hmm. I agree. Chapter 28 titled Domestic Experiences. So Meg and John Brooke, they are hanging out. They are doing great. Marriage is awesome, but it's also pretty hard. That makes sense considering they have kind of like their own little like house on the prairie situation where they don't have any assistance, financial or servant wise or any other way. And that's a little self-inflicted. There's a lot in this chapter about Meg not wanting to ask for help for fear of like being like a shame that she can't run her own house. But you know, that's it's, it seems a little sad to me. I would definitely ask for help, especially if your family is just down the lane. Uh, but they're pretty happy. And um, every day they're learning new things. She kind of goes through these like cooking phases where sometimes she tries to make really fancy food and sometimes she just tries to make really inexpensive food. In one of her frugal fits, Meg tries to save money by making her own jelly with currants that grow in their yard. Um, and she has John buy extra sugar and a bunch of like little pots to do it. One day while John's at work, she's like, all right, time to make the currant jelly. And she's never done it before. She's only watched like Hannah do it. And she's like, can't recreate it from memory. It's like really sticky and messy and it won't set. It remains like really liquidy. This is, um, this is where the crawdad sings tears, dog shit, jelly and jam. <laughs> Yeah, And this is like a recurring theme. It's like the March girls are absolutely horrible cooks. (laughs) They just can't figure it out. It's like down to to a girl, they just can't cook. And it's so funny because it always ends in like these experiments. Like like Joe might be the worst, but like this jelly jam experience is pretty bad. It's brutal. Yeah. And Meg's like, I want to ask for help. But like John and her like apparently agreed where they wouldn't like bother people with their domestic problems, which is just nonsense considering her mom was like, promise me you'll like not do that. But basically it's like five o'clock and like the, the kitchen is just full of like jam disaster. It's just like a like a current war zone in there, and she's like crying. It's and like somebody so like, got Nickelodeon slimed. Yeah, exactly. But it's just like bright red jelly. And at the beginning of their marriage, Meg told John, like, you, you can always like bring over friends from for dinner. And like he hasn't taken up on her to, or he has not taken her up on that once. But like today, he decides <laughs> to bring his friend Mr. Scott with like out any notice. He's like, nah, it's great. The wife's making jam. It's probably fine. Come on over. <laughs> when they arrive at the D spot, the house is like dark and locked. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and John's like, uh, hold on, uh, let me go out back. 
And was going, and Mr. Scotch probably like, dude, do you live here? Like, <laughs> like, does anyone live here? My favorite detail is Meg hired like a boy to help pick the currants out of the tree. And when John and Mr. Scott show up, like Cody said, the house is dark and the kid is still just like laying under the tree. So there's just like a rando dude in the yard. Everything's like boarded up and dark. Yeah, can we get a candle in here? <laughs> but like she he goes around back and like sees like he's like he sees Meg in the kitchen. Like the kitchen's just a fucking disaster. Mm-hmm. And she's crying. And the he she hired a girl Lottie to like help her out. And Lottie's just like in the corner, like eating. And just like Drew's like, and John's like, oh, what's going on here? <laughs> and Meg's like, okay, so I tried to do the jelly, but it's a fucking nightmare. And he's like trying to laugh it off. And you know, he's like, hey, you know, I brought a guest. Like, do you want to try and like whip something together? And Meg is like, you cannot bring Mr. Scott in here right now. This place is a nightmare. I can't entertain anyone. Go take him down the lane to like my mom's place for dinner. So Meg like then like goes ho goes back to her bedroom and is just like, you know, like so mad at herself. When she comes downstairs, she's like, she's like even more terrified to discover that John and Mr. Scott basically just had like a picnic in their house. Mm-hmm. And now they're gone. And like like John is walking like Mr. Scott home. So like Meg is like. I really, really want to like tell someone about this so, so I can like just just decompress and download. But she like, can't get herself to do it for some. Can't get herself to like talk to her mom about this. So she dresses up and waits for John to come home. And when John comes back, both her and John feel like they need to apologize, and therefore no one does. And it's just like this kind of like, so what was that? And John's like, I don't know what was that. So Meg's like basically like sewing now and John's like, you know, what you do in the 1800s, you're like ruefully look out a window <laughs> and like, she's like, I don't want to like make John mad. Cause like, apparently once he's mad, he's like mad, but like I'm mad. So instead she goes over and like kisses him on the forehead to like break the ice. And he's like, I'm sorry at like laughing at your like jelly disaster. And so later Megan, John and Mr. Scott over for like a planned nice dinner. And it like goes great. It's great. Everything's great. No big deal. But later on that year in the fall, Meg has this new issue where she's hanging out with Sally, Sally Moffat a lot. And Meg is just like drawn into Sally's wealth and is very like sad that she can't have nice things like, like Sally can. And she's usually been really good with John's money, not like spending it on things that she can't have. But now that's kind of changed. So John is like busy balancing. Mr. Lawrence's books and has him balance his own a little bit. And when he goes to do it, he's like going over expenses and he finds out that Meg has had a number of extravagant purchases, including a bolt of silk for $50, which I don't know if you've done the inflation calculator, but like that's basically enough silk to make like a wedding dress. And it's just the material. It's not even a dress yet. So you're not, they haven't even paid for labor to like just, by hand sew this dress. And he's like, hey, Meg, what the fuck is this? He's not like yelling at her, but he's just like, what are we doing here? Like, this is fucked up. And Meg tries to make excuses and is like, well, it's difficult to like be friends with a rich person when we're poor. And John like gets like sad and quiet. And like Meg's like, I probably shouldn't have like 
complained about being poor to this guy. And it's like, it's very hard to read. And, you know, she gets very sad because John works super hard and they don't have a lot of money. And because Meg spent so much money on this silk, now John can't get a new winter coat, which he like desperately needs because apparently he's just wearing rags, which is just, you know, brutal for my guy, John. Uh, he truly is out here like looking like Mr. Broke. And so the next day, Meg goes to Sally and tells her the whole story and is like, can you please buy the silk as a favor to me? Like, just so we can get the money back. And Sally's like, yep, we can do that. Meg uses the money to get a new coat for John. And when it arrives, she does a little prank and is like, do you like my new dress? And she's like wearing his coat. So things are going well for a while. Uh, the next summer, Lori goes to the D spot and is hanging out and is greeted by Hannah. And Hannah, and he's like, wait, why are you here? And she's like, wait downstairs. And he's like, uh, okay. But then Joe comes downstairs with a little bundle and Meg has had a newborn baby. And she's like, all right, Lori, close your eyes so I can hand you his, hand you your nephew, which is very sweet. And Lori opens his eyes and finds to be holding two babies. And everyone's like, yep, Meg had twins. And, you know, Mr. Broke is in the corner just like, I, <laughs> why, Lori? <laughs> That's not actually in the book, but that's the first thing I thought. I was like, poor guy is twice the amount of mouths to feed as he thought he was going to. <laughs> yeah. But Joe explains that the babies are a boy and a girl. Um, they discuss names, and the boy is going to be named John Lawrence in honor of uh, the Lawrence family and uh, his father. And the girl is going to be named Margaret, which is uh, after you know her mother, her mom, Meg, and her grandmother. Did you know that Marmy's name was Margaret? I did not. No. But that makes no, sense. I was, but I was like, huh, that's interesting. Um, and they're going to call the girl uh, Daisy so that there's no confusion because now we have three Megs rolling around the place. Right. Yeah. And the boy is going to be na- nicknamed Demi. Demi John. Demi Which John. I thought was funny. Yeah. <laughs> Which is very funny. <laughs> Lori's got jokes and it's very funny. But yes. Uh, but now the little Brooks twins are around and it's going to be a really fun time. And that's the end of the chapter. It's a, it's a pretty sad chapter because a lot of it is just Megan, John Brooke are the big poor. Yeah, but it was, one just- of my, it was one of, if not my favorite chapter today. And the, the reason I say that is because I love the Meg and John dynamic because it feels so real. Like, it feels very real. It feels, it doesn't feel like a, like, Alcott spends very little time on the romance between these two characters. It's like it's like the chapter after the happily ever after in a Jane Austen novel where it's like, right. all right, now we need to talk about making our own fucking jelly and how that's going to work, you know? And <laughs> she didn't even describe their engagement. No. And so their relationship just feels so real. It feels so down to earth. And that is also aided by the fact that they have no money. But I love like John has a very... he He's very quiet. And even when he gets mad or upset, like he it, it's never like outbursts or yelling or anything like that. And so he and Meg have just a very interesting kind of communication style with each other. Where, like, as you were saying, Cody, when they're both upset with each other, they both play silent treatment at first. Mm-hmm. And, and so much of this is like, oh, wife has been working on this thing all day. Husband comes home, doesn't quite understand the um, emotional investment sunk into this at this point, makes a joke, and is now in the doghouse for hours. Yeah. 
that happens today. Yes, <laughs> exactly. There's no... So I, I loved it because it just felt so relevant, so real. Yeah, I agree. And it's, and you know, it all comes to a head when the, the bolt of silk fiasco happens, but it gets turned around very nicely. Yep. Okay, moving on. So chapter 29 is titled Calls. Amy is trying to convince Joe to go on some house calls with her. And she's able to do this through some like flattery and just really talking up Joe where it means the most. Like, Joe, you're the best sister. You're going to do great. It's going to be awesome. I'll help you get dressed. You're going to look awesome. You know, help a sister out with this. So Joe begrudgingly agrees to go with Amy. But Amy is trying to instruct Joe on how to be, be like genteel and sociable. And of course, Joe takes things to like the absolute extremes of what Amy is telling her to do. So the first house they go and visit, Joe spends the entire time giving like one word answers to everything and is like basically like talking to a brick wall and is about as entertaining as a rock to these people. So first house, not a huge success. But Amy lets Joe know like, hey, you could be a little bit more sociable. And Joe's like, hey, you know what? That's a great idea. I'll take this as like an acting lesson and impersonate one of the girls at that last house and just be like an absolute chatterbox at this next house we go to. So they get there. Joe flips the script and puts on this air of like this total social butterfly. And in doing so, manages to embarrass Amy all the same. And is talking about Amy like riding horses and painting clothes. And finally, like in accidentally insinuating that one of their hosts is quote ordinary for enjoying one of her stories. The entire time, Amy is off like speaking to their hostess and is just overhearing bits and pieces of this conversation. And is just like, Joe, shot like stop talking. Do you know what you're saying? You're like talking about how we're so poor that we're painting clothes to be different colors. How I'm like riding horses, which isn't super ladylike. Like, you're embarrassing us. So finally, we get to, we, we leave this house and we go to a third house. Amy is so fed up with Joe that she tells her to just do whatever the fuck she wants. So Joe spends her time hanging out with the boys of the house and just talking shit the whole time. Amy takes special offense that. At this house call, Joe avoids Mr. Tudor while giving all of her best and being very cordial with um, another young man named Tommy Chamberlain who works at a grocery store. There's like this interesting conversation about this here where Joe is like, I don't give a rat's ass about Mr. Tudor. He's a rich prick. He's rude. I'm not going to give him the time of day. Whereas Tommy, this grocery store guy, He's poor, but he's very nice. And so I'm going to be kind back to him. Amy takes some like... She doesn't love this attitude because it's like, Joe, you should be doing the opposite because of their position. Obviously, we all know that that's wrong and Joe clearly doesn't like that. But that's just the mindset Amy has. They go to another two houses. No one is home at either of them. So they leave cards behind saying like, hey, we were here. What's up? Come see us. This time period sounds like it sucked. Like, hey, let's spend our Saturday just walking to different houses. The next stop is Aunt March's house. But before they go, the girls have this very interesting conversation about 
when and how you should let your opinions of someone know. And it's based a lot on like how position, money, and gender all play a part in that. Because Amy's whole thought is like, you know, we don't have really the license to tell people that we don't like them because we're poor, because we're women. And lastly, because it's it's not even just that we're poor. Like we don't even have like a social standing to do so. And Joe's like, well, what am I supposed to do? I'm not going to be just nice to people who are rude to me. And Amy's like, well, you kind of just have to live with that. So from here, we go into Aunt March's place and we see Aunt March and Aunt Carol abruptly end a conversation that was pretty clearly about them. And Joe is immediately like pissed off again. He's like, all right, these fucking people, they're gossiping about us behind our backs. So we have this conversation between the four women. Amy is, of course, very agreeable. And both of the older women really like Amy. Joe is cold about everything and is just very, you know, put off about the whole situation. So Joe is saying that she'd rather be independent and provide for herself while Amy is happy to help out her richer friends with stuff like a fair that is about to come up in coming chapters. And when asked whether or not they like speaking other languages, Joe is saying she sucks at studying languages and doesn't give a rat's ass about French, while Amy is like, oh, I'd love to get better at French because I want to be prepared when I go to Europe. So during these exchanges, the aunts are looking at each other with like very knowing glances. And the author, Alcott, is telling us, the reader, that Joe doesn't know it, but she is majorly fucking up by saying all this stuff and just being kind of rude. Right. The chapter ends with the girls leaving the house and both of these aunts looking at each other and saying, quote, you'd better do it, Mary. I'll supply the money. And Aunt Carol to reply decidedly, I certainly will if her father and mother consent. So stuff is in the works here. We don't know what it is yet, but Joe shooting herself in the foot. That's right. Yeah, very interesting chapter about this. You know, say say what you will about what Amy's like priorities are in terms of like protecting the image of status, but I feel like we're about to see Alcott kind of reward her, not necessarily for those internal beliefs, but just for like the reality on the ground of sometimes you have to eat shit, mm-hmm. as we put it now. Like, like it's like you know. It's sometimes it's not fun to like grit your teeth and be like, "Uh huh, yep." So we're we're just gonna leave. Like, hope you have a great day. And just go through the motions of politeness. Like that is much harder than being like, "Well, I guess I'll just go fuck myself and like leave." Like you can't you can't actually say that, right? Sometimes you have to just be like, "Wow, yeah, you were being crazy rude to me," and I'm just gonna be nice and I'm just gonna like continue my duty and I'm gonna go on my way. Like that is just sometimes a reality. And Joe, for all her many admirable qualities, like tact is not one. No. And it's not even that she's not being ladylike. She's just being actively like rude. Well, yeah. I mean, she's responding to rudeness in a way that she feels is justifiable. And it's, like it, you're it, saying, Cody, all, the reality it, is it may be justifiable. It's also likely to get you in trouble. It's also not necessarily like implicit rudeness. It's like biases that Joe has about the people that she's like, I get to be rude to them. 
right because right. they're bad behind the scenes right and that's another that's a whole other thing entirely where it's like you know you might meet someone that like you've heard bad things about and it's like are you gonna be super mean to them like you can but now you're the one that like according to everyone else in like the conversation or like or in the occurrence is being rude and you know she's like yeah like like this mr tudor he like she like implies that he's like a bad husband and that she's that he's like a like a rich dick like you said and amy's like yeah that's that may all very well be true but the whole point of us going to his house was to return a courtesy like that's what we're doing right now so like right. what's the point of returning a courtesy if you're just going to throw it in his face yeah i think your point on the bias is is a super important one where like we can do the same thing today, right? Where you mm-hmm. meet somebody who like, like, Hey, what's your name? Oh, I'm blah, blah, blah. And I work at a, on a hedge fund, like for a hedge fund on wall street. And immediately you're kind of like, all right. So there's a lot that I know about that type of work. And my options here are to behave like Joe, where it's like, based on this one thing I know about you, can I assume that that gives me some license to treat you at the very least without any kind of tact or or should I try and like get to know you a little bit more now now i I don't know I think some of the some of what the what is implied here is that Joe is also a pretty good judge of character right like she's not rude to Lori despite his money right. So I, you know, but I think the bias is definitely a part of it. Yeah. And I think what Amy is also trying to say is like, especially when you're talking about like, we don't have the position to do that. It's not necessarily like we're poor, so we need to like lick their boots. It's mostly like, like if anything goes sideways, we kind of, we're not in a position to be like having a ton of stuff, right? We have the Lawrences and that's awesome. And like in a pinch on March, but like sometimes you might want to be in other people's favor. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that Amy definitely prioritized. Right. Chapter 30 titled Consequences. Uh-oh. So Mr. Chester had referenced in the last um, chapter that he was hosting a fair. Mostly just like girls around town who uh, put on little tables and then all the money goes to charity. Just sounds like a fun little fair. Sounds nice. And he's including Amy and not Joe in this Um because he's like, Amy is like coordinated and Joe is like good at knocking over things. So for the fair where you're trying to display items for sale, Joe is not necessarily who you want. Uh, Amy is put in charge of the art table because she's got like a, she's a very natural artist. She's got a lot of things that are going to be up for sale during the fair. Uh, but while they're setting up, Mr. Chester asks Amy to let May, his daughter, be in charge of the art table instead. A narrative like the, the kind of like note on this um, is that May has been like jealous of Amy in general. And so the Chesters have uh, offered her up for that table also because of they're offended by Joe being rude. Uh, so now uh, they have to kind of like the, the marchers are kind of eating a combination of Joe's punishment and also Amy being very good, which I found ironic because Amy is so jealous of people with status often. And now it's her turn to be envy. And it's like, actually you, you see when like, when you allow yourself to kind of like be envious, this kind of like happened. It's not Amy's fault at all, but uh, just, just, it's just, I thought there was a little bit of irony in that. 
Amy is hurt because she doesn't understand what's going on. Very understandable. And she's like, I mean, if you don't want me at the art table, I can take all my art stuff like off the table and we don't have to sell it. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, we, we still want to sell the art and everything. But why don't you go take over the flower table? And Amy's like, OK. And, you know, May starts to feel guilty because Amy spent a lot of time arranging the art on the table and making it look nice. And she's like, Amy, do you want to, like, sell your own things at the flower table? And Amy also misunderstands this because she's like, are you trying to, like, say that my shit is bad and you don't want it on the table? So she's like, fine, I'll do it. And she takes everything, brings it away. And Amy spends like a lot of time trying to get the art table um, in shape because it was run by like these like much littler children. And so the table just like sucks. And when she goes home that evening, her family is like, this is pretty fucked up. Like you should not have to like basically give up your art table because some girl wants it like unknown reasons. And you're like, there, you should just quit. And, and, but then her mom's like, no, you should just go back and turn the other cheek. Like again, we're trying to learn lessons. Try and turn the other cheek to this in kindness. The next morning, Amy is like, you know, setting up the table and, you know, comes across an illustration with the slogan, love thy neighbor as thyself. And she looks over and she notices that, that the art table is pretty empty without her stuff. Like she did provide the bulk of the art. So her having it makes it look like there's not that much over there. And Amy also overhears that other girls are saying that Amy was being selfish and rude for taking away her art from the table, which is not fair because that's not what happened but that's what people are saying uh between this criticism and like the love thy neighbor reminder she goes and drops off all of her stuff and is like hey we should sell this and like may's like thank you i will take it so then um the fair starts going great with that the flower table is going okay because you know it's summer and people can just pick flowers and so her <laughs> table isn't that popular Meanwhile, the art table is just a hit. People are loving the art table. And Amy's like, you know, feeling a little worn out. Like, that sucks. Like, it's, it's super not fun that, like, basically all of her good work is, like, getting someone else credit and favor. And she's really depressed about that. But Lori arrives from a weekend uh, from college. And Joe tells him about, you know, what's been going on with the fair. And Lori's like, well, fuck that. Like if these people want to see sick flowers, what's what are they doing in my greenhouse if I can't gas up the March girls? So he donates like a bunch of exotic flowers from the garden to Amy's table. And he also like organizes like a group of his friends to come down and buy things from Amy's table, which is just extremely cool. So tight. So tight. So the next day, the fair is just way different. Amy's table is so much more popular due to like Lori's sick flowers. And also, like, his friends arrive, and it's just a bunch of cool, rich college kids who were like, dude, this girl put on such a sick flower table. Like, they're, they're definitely doing, like, Lori's bidding on this. And Joe is also there. And Joe is actually putting on, like, the Joe charm. Like, very rare, very clutch Joe charm at this point, especially considering she was just a social disaster in the last chapter. And, you know, at one point, Joe, like, is, like, looking at the rest of the fair. And she sees May's art table and she notices that like, you know, there's like no art on here. And she's like, hey, why aren't you putting my sister's art on your table? And May's like, I would, but we're straight up sold out of Amy March originals. Like they're so popular. And, you know, Joe comes over to the flower table to let everyone know. And like Lori basically like orders his college friends to go and buy everything else off the table from May. That includes like all the stuff that May painted herself. 
And so like Aunt Carol and Miss Barch are also at the fair. You know, I assume just to like judge everyone. They're like, can't wait to like look at this shit. But when they learn about what happened with Amy and like her selling out her art and her turning the flower table around, you know, Aunt Carol says something to Miss March, who's like, oh, yes, yes. Like they're just scheming about something. Who knows what? But they're scheming. That evening, all the girls are like praising Amy. She did so good. And then a week later, Miss March receives a letter from Aunt Carol. The Carol family is going to Europe and they want to take Amy with them. And Joe is very confused and upset because she's like, I thought I was going to Europe since I put in all that work to be Miss, to be Aunt March's companion. And Marmy's basically like, yeah. Well, that was going to happen, but apparently you and Amy recently had a conversation with Aunt March where you said that you don't like accepting favors and that you won't learn French. And Amy is big on accepting favors and wants to learn French. So they're taking Amy. Aunt Carol kept the receipts, folks. She did. She did. <laughs> and and, and Marmy's like, did that happen? And Joe's like, it didn't not happen. <laughs> Oh, Joe March, your fucking mouth. That's basically from the... That's not me saying that, but it is me saying that, but it's also almost immediately from the book. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Yeah. (laughs) So Amy comes home and is like, this is awesome. This is going to be like a working holiday for me. I'm going to get so good at art. You guys won't even understand it. And, you know, they're getting ready for Amy to leave. And they're saying goodbye as she boards a ship. But like for some reason, she clings to Lori and she asks Lori to take care of her family. And Lori's like, I will. And if you never need me to come to Europe, I will. And that's where the chapter ends. One other thing, uh, another Lori, Joe, awkward moment where Lori's like looking for a quote, thank you from Joe when they like put this whole scheme together. Joe's just like, all right, Lori, like closes the gate on his face. And Lori's meant to just like simp on home. You know, I, I just like Joe, just tell him it'll never happen, you know? Yeah, what are we doing? Um, love this chapter. I I love Lori so much. He's so great. That's just a cool guy move. Very cool guy move. But I mean, it's what you'd do for your little sister if you could. So, you know, there's that. Chapter 31's our last chapter today. It's titled Our Foreign Correspondent. Um, and This whole chapter is a series of letters written by Amy from Europe sent back to either all the girls or Marmy. And so I won't get into everything that's going on because a lot of it is just descriptions of stuff that's in Europe. And if you want to know about that, I would suggest you either read a travel book or go to Europe if you can. Or look on Google Images. Yeah, it's good stuff. But she writes her first letter from London. She's talking about, you know, shenanigans, carriage rides with her and her cousin. She's shopping over there. And she catches up while in London with Fred and Frank Vaughn, if you remember them from the chapter Camp Lawrence, which both of these guys were rich friends of Lori's who came over and hung out. Uh, Amy reconnects with these two guys. And apparently they have a blast in London. Next stop is Paris. And Fred Vaughn basically follows them there. And it's made pretty clear right away that he's crushing on Amy pretty hard. He's trying to buy her shit. Amy is a fan of Fred, thinks he's pretty cool. 
but she notes that he's not as charming as Lori. And the only other thing in this letter that I found funny was there's a note on like loud American tourists, <laughs> which I, just, I think is awesome. Um, Some things never change, you know? Of course not. Just penicillin. Um, <laughs> uh, That's right. That's right. <laughs> the next letter is from Heidelberg, Germany. And this one is addressed to Mama, where the previous letters were addressed to all of the girls. So Fred is still with them. <laughs> and there's no I was re- alarmed. There's no reason for him to be. Like, the guy just has time to burn, apparently. Okay. And it's like yeah, you following Amy across Europe. You made a you made a crack about Lori Simpin. This Fred guy. Yeah. Bro, chill. Play it cool <laughs> for me one time. Oh, Cody. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, sir, but he and some of his cronies who are following Amy around Europe. I mean, first of all, is there like a bigger simp move than just like following somebody on vacation physically following them around yeah stalker um anyway so in germany in one night fred and some of his buddies show up outside of amy's window uh amy and her cousin flo and they like sing this song to them at their window and amy and flo throw flowers down at them as like thanks you know and some of the boys like pick them up and then run off to go booze or smoke or whatever. And then Amy goes on to describe that she thinks that Fred might propose and that if he does, she will likely say yes. So I find this very funny because in previous letters that she sends home, Amy just doesn't see this at all. She's like, oh, this very friendly Fred fellow is following us around Europe. We we like having him around quite a bit. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, shit, I think he might want to marry me. And I know this because he got really bummed when I told him the flower that he was keeping in his pocket was one that Flo sent down and not me. He's giving a bunch of other signs, too. But Amy goes on in this letter to her mom where she's justifying this decision. And so she's basically saying like, hey, I'm going to say yes if he proposes. And the reason why is somebody in this goddamn family has to marry rich. Meg (laughs) chose Mr. Broke and like, look, I'm not going that route and I'll be the martyr here and marry rich to provide for everyone else. So don't worry about it, Marmy. Got it covered. And then she's also saying like, what am I supposed to do? Like, it's not my fault, Marmy, if like guys like me, you know, like I can't control that. So all of this is just it sounds almost like a letter to herself justifying right. her decision, but it's just addressed to Marmy. Yeah, she's she's like, let's let's look at the options here. I don't know if you noticed this, but our family is not wealthy. And like it was like we had an opportunity for maybe Meg, because she's pretty. She could have gotten a rich guy, but no, she botched it. Yeah. Like Joe, don't even get me started. <laughs> Joe's going to like be a spinstress until the day she dies. And she's like, Meg is like, Meg is like described as like too weak to like entertain suitors, which is probably true. Oh, Beth. But she's like, or Beth. Yes, Beth. Yeah. yeah. Beth is too, Beth is too weak to entertain suitors. is probably true. So who does that leave me? 
the pretty one and the one who can speak French. I, right. I got to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. So the chapter ends with Amy signing off and saying like, hey, unfortunately, since I started writing all this letter to you, I'm going to finish it off by saying that Fred, unfortunately, has to go back and see to his brother, Frank, who is ill. But he says that he'll meet us up with us in Rome. And I, he's likely going to propose to me there. So I'll just wait for your advice on this. Let me know what you think. But like my head kind of knows where I'm going. And that's where we end today. I just, I fucking love Amy so much. She's so hilarious, dude. Just cracking like, me up. This whole letter is just killing me. There's like also no less than two just stray bullets for Joe in each one of the oh, letters yeah. she writes. <laughs> like everyone is like, you know, Joe would never do this, but like I'm pulling myself together. <laughs> and I don't know what to tell you, Marmy. I'm fucking crushing it right now. I don't know <laughs> if you notice this, but Joe could never do what I'm doing right now. I'm it's I'm doing so stuff great. she's never even dreamed. Of. Like, look, look, Marmy, stories are nice, but you know, this family can't eat on like, you know, smut alone. Like someone's <laughs> got to really pull in the big bucks. Yeah. She's so, so funny. And like, it would be detestable if she wasn't so just like innocent, you know, but it's just, I just it's like, another I extension just of like when she was younger, it's another extension when she was younger and she'd be like, like, that's a great lesson, Marmy, even though I'm perfect and it doesn't apply to me, I'll still take it to heart. <laughs> right. Right. She still very much seems like, you know, the 12 year old that we started this story with. And now she's what, 16? And so, you know, we're starting to get to a point where, like, some of this behavior, she's going to grow up in this story. And I'm just like looking forward to any kind of change in Amy, but I'm enjoying the crazy ride that we're on at the current moment. Same here. Cody, takeaways from this section of reading. What do you what are you thinking? It really seems like all our girls, except for Beth, are kind of growing into their own people. We haven't gotten a lot of Beth-centered stuff in this section. Yeah. Um, she makes a couple comments here or there, but Meg, Joe, and Amy are really growing into their own characters. Yeah. I that was one of the things that I was gonna say as a burden, is I was like, we're not getting enough Beth in here. What yeah. the fuck? Yeah, foreshadowing one of them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I was going to say, and this is just kind of overlapping into one of my burdens for the week, but we don't have like what I feel is like a true protagonist in this story. Joe is meant to be kind of like a the quasi main character, but so much, at least at this section, was Meg and Amy. And Joe has her chapters, you know, but I'm just like, Part of me wants, like I said earlier, earlier with Lori, I would love a first person account of some of this stuff just from Joe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, uh, it seems like some of the earlier chapters were closer to writing in Joe's first person, but now yeah. we've really gone to like a much broader view of that. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's also one of like my burdens today was I'm like, okay, so it's, there's just a lot of balls in the air right now. Like it feels like mm -hmm. we're juggling a lot of character development, and I'm trying to hold on to like to what's going on in this story, and it it just feels very loose at times. 
I, I know there's a better way of putting that. I'm trying to think of a better way of explaining like how I'm feeling. I just can't put it to words exactly. No, I think I think you're right on. It's it does feel like it feels like we're building up to a sneeze. Yeah. It feels like the book is just keeps building and building and something's going to happen and we haven't reached it yet, but it just feels like it it felt like the beginning of this book of this chapter or the, not this chapter, the section of the book was like, all right, this is what you missed. And now the cliffhanger doesn't get like resolved. It's like, uh, it's even more tension. You, you know what it kind of feels like, Cody? It, it almost feels like either reading or watching Game of Thrones, where every single chapter, the title of it is just the name of the person you're following for that chapter. A little bit. And to me, when you're saying it feels like we're building up to a sneeze, I agree with you. I just want to know what this sneeze actually is and who's sneezing. Because right. like who like what what is the climax of this story going to be and who is going to be most affected by it? And maybe the lesson is like everybody is and I should be as a result of that. But that that was kind of part of part of something that I just wanted to get your take on so no yeah i i agree it that method of writing where it's more like this chapter is dedicated to this person or this chapter is dedicated to this person and every once in a while we'll get like a and now we have like a situation chapter it's like the christmas chapter or like something yeah. like that but those are getting fewer and far between yep um with that cody what's your what is your burden for this week dude laura you gotta figure it out you gotta just say something <laughs> man yeah, I can't. I can't read this anymore, my man. You gotta just. You gotta just lay it all on the line. What are we doing? I'm with you, as I've said several times throughout this podcast. The other thing that I just want to say is like Joe's. What we were talking about before, Joe's lack of tact and her stubbornness in some of this stuff ends up it's getting. A, it's it's a little bit too much. Where I'm just like, hey, dude, we've been with you for like four years at this point. Maybe. Maybe we can try a different method. With, you know what with some of this stuff. You know what I'm really realizing. Joe is now. Joe mm -hmm. is the SNL Weekend Update character, like trapped with the worst person at the party, and they're like the super self righteous person. Who's like, <laughs> is like, is like, oh yeah, are you enjoying your phone? It's like, uh, yeah. It's like. Like yeah, like do, do you enjoy that a child slave made that in China? You're like okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it feels. I mean, I don't know if I would go that far, but it does feel a little bit the, like that. The, the okay, no the the calls chapter definitely felt like that. Yeah, it definitely felt where it's like, hey Joe, can we be a person? Yeah, you know what it reminded me a lot of is like there were times growing up where my family would. Like my mom and dad would be like, hey, everybody, we're going to a museum today. And might have been me, might have been one of my four siblings were like, you know what? Fuck museums. I fucking hate museums. And I am going to let everyone know for the entirety of our museum trip that I am not on board for this. And it's like, wouldn't this just be easier if for a second you were like, hey, maybe museums are tight? <laughs> like, why not take that approach every once in a while? Yeah. Joe is definitely her contrarian nature probably makes her an excellent writer. But sometimes, 
you, you it's like you don't want to like hand it to Amy no. and have her be like like because because like Amy's wrong, right? Like you right. shouldn't just like put up with bullshit just because people are rich. But sometimes you got to put up with bullshit regardless uh-huh. of the situation. No <laughs> doubt. Just, yeah, yeah. I'm with you there. All right. What's your uh, what's your capital this week, sir? Oh, dude. Joe fucking around and finding out about like the trip to Europe. Like no one complained more about hanging out with Aunt March than her, and is and then like even like pawned off the companionship duties to Amy, and is like somehow shocked that she's like not going to Europe with Aunt March. Yeah, like, that was great. It was like it's like, it like like Joe, 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 Joe like if 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 it was like you know. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty and stuff, but I feel like it's like, all right, you're hanging out with Aunt March, and she's gonna take you to Europe, and she's like, "Fuck that, I don't want to do it anymore." Okay, you're not going to Europe, and she's like, "What? Why?" Yeah, I was like, "I was like, yes, you're learning a lesson. This is good." I know. I it was it, that was so great, and I was bummed because like, okay, who do I really want to go to Europe? I want Joe to go, but I also want Joe to deserve to go, and like. Some part of that is what we were just talking about, where it's like, hey, you need to play the game a little bit sometimes. Like, give your aunt any reason to believe that speaking French isn't the worst thing in the world. I know. I know, dude. That, what are we doing? Right. Okay. My capitals are, and I swear I probably do this every week, but Lori just being the party animal at the wedding. Love it, dude. Yeah, and there. his rescue at the fair is just an all-time save, dude. His um, rescue at the fair was so sick. I I loved it, and I just love the fact that like it's not a situation where Lori is only friends with Joe. He is involved in every single one of these girls' lives and is ready to like. I mean, he's like truly a brother to them at this point, um, or it feels like it, and. He, yeah, I mean, he felt comfortable going up to Meg on her wedding day and being like, "Don't they style the booze?" <laughs> I know it's here because my fucking grandpa sent a bunch over. the The other capital that I had for this week was just that description of married life. Everything about that chapter I loved so much. I loved how like deeply uncomfortable it was for so much of it. Like, I just can I could relate to everything going on. Like the mm-hmm. petty arguments and getting upset leading into the like, fuck you, I'm not talking to you right now. Or like, I am not going to be the one to apologize first. Like all of that just, it's so relevant. Like it, you wouldn't know that that chapter was written in the 1860s or about the 1860s. So I, I thought yeah. it was great. All right. For next time. We will be reading chapters 32 through 38. We've got two episodes left of reading, and then we're going to be watching. I think our guests want to watch both movies. So I think they want to watch the Winona Ryder and the Saoirse Ronan adaptations. And we can do a compare contrast. We have to talk about that. We'll deliberate. But we will have a movie episode coming with some guests after the next two episodes on the reading. Excited to get to that. Before we get to those, tell your friends, follow us on Instagram, shoot us an email at bibliotakes at gmail.com. 
We'd love to hear your thoughts and talk about it on the pod. Until next time, this has been the Bibliotheques Podcast. We'll see you all soon.